going through this passage in Ephesians chapter 2 at the end um, where talk, Paul talks to the church in Ephesus around like what they are being built into. And a part of what I want to draw on this morning is the fact that actually we are called to be the church in general, a collection, a community, a fellowship, a gathering of God's followers of Jesus, his son. And there's something to be taken for granted sometimes of um, we are not individuals. We are greater as a gathering than we are as individuals. Um, we've had this picture, I think it was Seth, um, right at the beginning of the, when the church started to meet in Nicky and Dave's house, of a coal on its own will go out. The flame will die down. It will give out some heat, but unless it's brought into the fire, unless it's brought into with other coals, the, the heat doesn't go out past that one individual coals. And that's the picture. So... You might remember, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, that we looked at the concept of us being rooted in Jesus and becoming a holy temple. And I wanted two weeks ago to go from holy temple to dwelling place of God in one week, but I just got stuck on that concept of us being a holy people. And last week we looked at the fact, well last time we looked at the fact that holiness isn't really something we dwell on, is it? We dwell on the beauty, if you're a follower of Jesus, you might dwell on the beauty of grace. The fact that because of Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection, we have all of the benefits of new life. With all of our baggage, all of our mess, we leave that at the cross. We ask for forgiveness and we turn away from our old, sinful, selfish mindset and resolve to follow Jesus. And in doing this, in this transaction, we invite Jesus into our hearts and ask him to almost take the driving seats of our lives and, and, and for, for any of you that have made that decision, you'll know that Jesus is a much better driver than we are. It's almost like he made and designed the car. But this the problem we looked at last week is that God, as we approach him, is a holy God. Completely perfect. There is no sin, no darkness, nothing impure in him. And last week we looked, and last time we looked at the fact that in the Old Testament they had to, uh, and religion around consecrating originally a tent called the tabernacle, and then a temple, a building called the temple, so that this building or tent or place could host the presence of God. And we looked, hopefully, I can remember exactly whether we got to this point or not, at the fact that God always wills, he always desires to dwell amongst his people, his creation. And if you look at the end of Revelation, uh, I think it's chapter, I had it open, 19, is it? 20? 21? Around there. Um, it looks at this final destination of God fully dwelling among his people. Um, and that's the kind of destination. And I, our concept is that actually the kingdom of God is always breaking into the present. And this concept that God wants to dwell with us as a church. Um, yeah, so the Trinity also reveals that the nature of God is in constant communication and fellowship and relationship with each other, with each other, and that God desires intimacy and closeness with us. We're almost invited into this dance. But the problem is that we, if we're honest, are inherently rebellious and selfish. And the Bible calls this sin. So God restores this intimacy, as we said a moment ago, by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we have access, restored access to the Father. But there's an incredible exchange that takes place where we put our trust and hope in Jesus and are given the Holy Spirit. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. So we have this helper inside of us, joined with our spirit that yearns for the things of God. 
delights in light, in beauty, in love, in hope, in peace, in patience, in self-control, in goodness, in faithfulness, and in joy. But even having the Holy Spirit inside of us, living in us, doesn't completely remove the desire to sin. And we all make mistakes. In small group last week, or this week, Mike led it, it was amazing. Um, And we looked at this, what is the dominant story that we believe in our lives about our identity? Are we, he he started the, the group by saying, are we a sinner saved by grace? Does everyone agree with this statement or not? And he did a yes or no, and we all went to the yes side of the room. And then Mike was like, really, so your primary definition of your identity is as a sinner? And then we were like, yes, have we got the answer wrong? It's really interesting, isn't it? Are we a sinner saved by grace? Is the statement true? Yes, it is. But are we holy and righteous in the eyes of God and a son or daughter of God? Yes, we are. It's interesting because on our, 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 um, we, our identity, is no longer defined by our relationship with sin, but it's defined by our relationship. We are defined as co-heirs, adopted into an inheritance that goes far beyond anything we can ask or imagine. And there's a real deep sense of joy in that, of knowing that identity. But holiness is still important. But I hope I nudged you last week not to focus on dealing with your sin and the selfishness and the stuff that takes us away from God and repenting just to make you feel better or make me feel better. It's not a guilt thing into repenting. I nudged you in love because I think that consecrating our lives is an act of laying down our stuff that is getting in the way of the intimacy that we can experience with God. And if anything, if you're anything like me, we love intimacy but we don't like sacrifice. We want everything without the cost. And if we're honest, isn't that the case? So let's look, before we get into the chapter in Ephesians, at 1 Peter chapter 1, and just see what Peter has, the Apostle Peter has to say about holiness. So if you've got your Bible, if you've got an app, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse starting in verse 13, just says this. Well, they should all come up. There it is, on the screens behind. Therefore... With minds that are fully alert and sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you uh, when Jesus Christ is revealed at the coming. As obedient children, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call me on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. That's kind of um, echoing a thing in, in their culture where you would be bought um, out of slavery by a redemptive price. So, and you'd use gold and silver. So he's saying you weren't brought at a price of a financial wealth. You were, and it says you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with, not with wealth, but with the precious defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him... You believe in God, who raised him from the dead, glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. So when we come to this passage that we're going to look at in Ephesians and come back to, what we see is a picture of a community that meets together and is called the church that was bought at a price. 
Now, you guys will know this, this is Sunday School 101, that the building isn't the church. And it's quite obvious because we're met in a maritime museum. This is not a traditional church. Um, the name kind of gives it away. We're in a museum. Uh, but we, as individuals, joined together in Jesus, are the church. Wherever we meet, it doesn't really matter. So here's the passage that we're going to look at today in Ephesians 2. Uh, I'm just going to read verse 22. No, verse 21. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises, this picture of the church, rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, in Jesus, you two, us, are being built together with one another to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. I was struck by a phrase I heard this week that said... The graveyard is ordered and and kind of quiet and everything's okay and everything's kind of sorted. The nursery is a place of mess, a place of eating, but it's a place of life. And it struck me of what kind of church do we want to be? Do we want to be a graveyard where everything, we know what's going to happen and everything's the same and regular and regimented? Or do we want to be a nursery where people are coming into new life, where it's messy, where people have got questions, where there's food on the floor, where everything's been spilt? Part of me is like, oh, do you know what? I'd love the nursery. Is that I love the nursery sense. So that was just added in. Um, now, last week we looked at the Holy Temple. This was, until the time of Jesus, the dwelling place of God's in AD 70, about 30 years after Jesus went up to heaven. And as far as I could research, it was never rebuilt. But it was not only destroyed in a physical sense, it was destroyed in a, a spiritual sense as well. And I know we are coming up to Christmas, but I've got a slight Easter story for you. Um, the impact of the cross fundamentally changed the temple. In the temple, there was a curtain that separated the holiest place in the temple from the rest, the Holy of Holies. This was the holy place. The high priest was only allowed into this space once a year, following strict ritual. He had to have a rope tied around his waist so that if he was struck dead, the rest of the priests could yank him out and they wouldn't have to go in there and be struck dead as well. It was quite an intense place. So the Holy of Holies, the center of the temple, was separated by the rest of the temple by a curtain known as a veil. And this curtain represented the separation between us and God because of our sin. And now as I was researching, it's unclear how thick this curtain is. Let's just say it wasn't a pair of Trago's curtains. I doubt it was even a pair of Ikea curtains, not even a John Lewis set of curtains. This was a proper set of curtains. Now, they were thick. It was long as well, 60 feet by 30 feet. It took 300 priests to, rem to maneuver it into place. And, and the kind of where I landed on the research, they were like, oh, you can't say for definite how thick it was. People generally agree it was the thickness of a hand. So about an inch thick, depending on how big your hands are. In summary, big and thick. So at the cross, Mark's gospel tells us of the incredible exact moment that Jesus gave up his life for us. It says in Mark, uh, it's right at the end of Mark, chapter um, 15, verse 37, I think. With a loud cry, yeah, 15, 37. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom, from heaven to earth. The curtain that symbolized the separation 
of us from God by sin was torn in two. And that's why we can read Ephesians 2 and get excited. Because in Jesus we are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. There's no longer a special building, there's special people instead. But we're not even that special. Because, but God still calls us holy, isn't that incredible? So what does that mean for us as a church and the church as a whole? What is the significance of the church being the dwelling place of God by his spirit? His presence is everything. God's presence is everything. The presence of God is the If you and I were walking around Israel in the um, first century when Jesus was um, there walking around the earth, Jesus is and was the presence of God. The manifest presence of God is Jesus. And you could experience God in seeing, listening to, and even touching Jesus. That's what John 1.14 talks about. The word, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory in the glory of the one and only Son, who came from God, came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, it's helped me over the last couple, well, last month as we've kind of developed this series to think about it like this. What happened in Jesus' presence? What kind of stuff happened? Was it boring to be in God's presence in Jesus? I don't think so. It was exciting. Things happened. What kind of things? I'll give you just a flavor, a little idea of what happened. This is from Luke's account of Jesus' life um, in chapter 6 of Luke's gospel. Jesus had spent the night praying, as was his um, routine, I suppose, as was his way he did things, of praying all night up on the mountainside. So that's when he says in verse 17, he comes down with them, with the disciples that he's just chosen, and stood on a level place, and a large crowd of his disciples, they were there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coastal region, from Tyre and Sidon. So a big crowd from not just his disciples, but a whole crowd of other people as well. They had come to hear him, firstly. They'd come to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cleansed, were cured. And people all tried to touch him. Why? Because power was coming from him and healing. Who? Healing them all. Now for me, this passage is an image of the church. Jesus at the center. With power going out for healing, for restoration, for purity. People coming near, from near and far, knowing their need for him and coming to hear him. Coming near to him. Why? Because they wanted to hear him and they wanted to experience his power for healing. And all types of healing. Jesus wasn't really that fussy. Emotional healing, spiritual healing. Now, because Jesus is God, he has a 100% success rate when he's praying for people. Now, if you're up to 100%, that is great going. Um, but I think you're lying. Uh, but we learn, don't we? We learn to grow in praying. And we expect. But we know it's not down to us to heal people. It's down to God. It's not about us. We just partner with God. God, where are you moving? Where are you working? And because we know it's not down to God to heal, it's not down to us to heal, it's down to God. We don't take any sense of failure or any sense of disappointment when someone isn't healed. It's not down to us, it's down to God. We live in an expectation of a time when all will be renewed, all will be restored, and all will be healed. But now we see only part of that. We see a glimpse of it. But if you think of that crowd around Jesus as the church, how does that change your expectation of gatherings like this? 
What is the potential for what could happen in a gathering like this? It's interesting, isn't it? Because we're called to gather around Jesus every time we meet. We worship. We started with worship. We lift up the name of Jesus. We praise his name for who he is and what he's done. In prayer, we communicate with God through Jesus. And in studying God's word in the Bible, Jesus is revealed. Every story in the page whispers his name. But you might be thinking, but Jesus isn't actually here. Is he like in the church? Well, that is a great question. I'm really glad you asked that. Is Jesus actually here? So after Jesus was raised from the dead, he spends time with his disciples. He proves to them he is actually Jesus. They recognize his scars. He eats with them so they know he's not a ghost. And he continues to teach them. And then he ascends into heaven. But he doesn't just go. He says this in Luke 24, verse 49. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city, stay in Jerusalem until you have been clothed with power from on high. So what is Jesus talking about there? He's talking about the events in the book of Acts, of Pentecost. When the disciples wait in the upper room, instructed by Jesus um, to wait for the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit falls on them and rests on them like fire. And because of this, the early church is birthed and spreads like fire throughout the known world. And you can read about that in the book of Acts. So we, as a church, are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. We as individuals and we corporately. Now for me, that changes my expectation of what could happen on a Sunday morning. And actually, we carry the Holy Spirit with us. It changes my expectation of what could happen when I pray for someone outside of the church as well. Because of Jesus, if Jesus is here by his spirit, all heaven could break loose. Now, we, if we want to circle back and what we were talking about, holiness, the way I'd approach it would be like this. We're all carrying stuff. You can imagine me, if I had a chance to actually do the illustration properly, I'd be carrying a, like a whole load of boxes of presents. And we're laden now, maybe a load of bags as well, and maybe a big rucksack on my back. And it's as if God's coming up to us and saying, look, I want to give you a gift. This is my Holy Spirit. This is my presence full of so many other things. And you're like, what do I need to shift? What do I need to drop to be able to see and experience and have that gift? We need to, let, to receive the gift. We have to sacrifice and lay down all the stuff that we are carrying. And even if it's painful, we realize that actually compared to the gift that Jesus offers us, his presence, all the other stuff is actually pretty worthless. That's going to be different for each of us. But what is God calling us, calling you to lay down so that you can take this gift, receive this gift? There's a story in the Bible which I think illustrates this of a rich young man. We're not going to read it all. But this rich young guy comes up to Jesus, and you can read the story in Luke 18, and he asks Jesus, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And the question reveals the issue. It's not a matter of doing. What must I do? It's not a matter of doing. It's a matter of following. Jesus says to him, do what the law says. And he lists the Ten Commandments, or some of the Ten Commandments. And the man says, I've, I think quite remarkably, actually I've done all of these things. I've kept them since I was little. And then Jesus just says this in verse 22 of Luke 18. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. 
See, Jesus looks at the man's heart. He looks at the man's hands and he sees what he's carrying. It's his wealth. It's not saying that all wealth is wrong at all. He's just saying that was the thing for that man that held him back. That was the higher priority that he couldn't lay down to be able to receive Jesus into his life. Verse 23, when the man heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus invites us to follow him. But it's really hard to receive that gift if our hearts and our hands are full of other priorities. Part of righteousness is single-mindedness. The Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God. And part of that seeking first is realizing what other things we're seeking as well. But you know what? It's great to count the costs. There's a Hillsong song which I love that says, I've counted up the cost and my wealth is in the cross. And my question to you this morning is, we would have you counted up the cost and seen that wealth in the cross? So, I've tried to be a good preacher because I've finished and I've got three points. Yes, they're right in the last page. And they all begin with P. Amazing. Three points all beginning with P. And they, I think, are a result of us experiencing the presence of God. Because I think this is something we need to go after as a church and as a community. It's a distinctive of the body of, of Christ. That we would be a dwelling place for the presence of God. The first is purity. The role of the Holy Spirit is to continually, we ask to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not a once thing, it's a continual thing. The Holy Spirit in us reveals the sin and the selfishness in our lives. It purifies us, refines us to become more like Jesus, to have Jesus' priorities and his values. There's an old song, it's great. It says this, refine as fire. My heart's one desire is to be holy, set apart for you, God. It's interesting if you look at the image of fire in the Bible. It's always purifying and it's always refining. Burning off everything that isn't holy. I think we've got time. So when Moses hears God speak from a burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, it's the fact that the bush isn't burned up that attracts Moses. Moses doesn't go over because it's a burning bush. He's like, well, you know, that happens all the time kind of thing. He's looking at the bush and thinking, well, that's not being consumed. Why isn't the bush being consumed? God calls out from the bush and says, the bush doesn't burn because God's presence burns off everything impure and unholy. And that place was holy. It just burns. Part of experiencing God's presence in ministry and in prayer and through reading the Bible is that we encounter the holiness of God and it highlights our impurity, the stuff that needs to be burnt off. I don't know about you, but and I can only speak for myself, but I think God is calling us to a time when we are focused on purity and holiness. Not to beat us up, but so that we can burn for him and not be consumed. And the second thing, the next P, the second thing that happens as a result of experiencing the presence of God is that we experience God's power. Firstly, it's a power to save, a power to redeem. We often think of God's presence as healing, which is true, but it often happens that when we invite God's presence, we see people who are healed, but God's priority isn't our physical healing. It's amazing when it happens, and we rejoice, and it's great, and it's a sign of God's mercy to us, but God's priority is our salvation. It's new life. It's being born into this new spiritual life in Jesus, stepping into the life that God has for us. The presence of God is the potential for new life and new creation. That's what Jesus um, 
That's what we see in Jesus' presence. People were set free. People were released from slavery to sin. People were healed of sickness. Sight was restored. But more than that, people that the society rejected and despised were restored and had dignity by the power of Jesus. So when we invite the Holy Spirit, when we invite God's presence, or when we're aware of his presence, there is potential for salvation ourselves. But often if we open our eyes and look around, we'll see the breakthrough that's there for other people as well. Last me, my last P. As we are aware of the presence of God, we experience God's passion. His passion. It's both a passion for him, to praise and to worship. That is the natural reaction of being experiencing, of experiencing God's love and his presence. A passion for his name, for God to be lifted high and to be praised. Dave Miller writes this in one of his songs, In light of all you've done for me, I lay my life down at your knees. There's a response of worship to get down on our knees and just submit. And passion has more, probably, well, I've said two aspects. It's probably a lot more than that. But I could only think of two when I was writing. But passion results in worship and compassion or mercy. You cannot experience the presence of God and not respond in worship. And you cannot experience the presence of God and not respond with compassion. It's almost like when we experience the Holy Spirit, however that happens, we take on some of God's priorities, his heart for justice, his heart for compassion, his love for the poor and the desperate, the lonely, the brokenhearted. And I've preached on this a few times, but Jesus' mandate, filled with the Holy Spirit, was to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I think that is our mandate as well, as we experience God's presence, as we are empowered by him to do the stuff that Jesus would do. And wants to do through our hands and our feet. So, well done me. No kids have interrupted. Do you want to stand?